Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm Shane Rosenthal. And on this episode, I'll be playing the second part of my conversation with Oxford mathematician John Lennox. Before we do that, I'd like to play you a clip from an episode I recorded just a couple of weeks ago. When it comes to worldview options, nobody's really neutral, are they? You can have a referee with the black and white stripes on the football game, and they're not necessarily for the Chiefs, not for the 49ers. They're (laughs) making a call based on objective criteria. And if you saw one of them wearing the Chiefs hat, it might give you concerns, right? Well, when it comes to refereeing the different worldview options, nobody can sort of take off the hat. We come from a particular worldview. Now, as you heard, in that clip, I specifically mentioned two football teams and my analogy about the challenges we face in refereeing between all the different worldview options. In fact, I mentioned the Chiefs and the 49ers, which happen to be the two teams that will be playing each other in this year's Super Bowl. Now, though that episode only aired two weeks ago, it was actually recorded at an event that took place more than a week before the NFL playoffs got started. So what do you think? Is this perhaps a sign that I've been given the gift of prophecy or just a strange coincidence? Well, I think I'll let you be the judge of that. But if I were you, I'd be a little skeptical. Well, as I mentioned earlier, on this episode, I'll be playing the second part of my conversation with John Lennox. And in the first part of this exchange, I asked him to discuss the way that some of the major worldviews in general, and the Christian worldview in particular, attempt to explain the problem of evil. James Sire has written a lovely little book that millions have read called The Universe Next Door. And he points out very helpfully that although there are many worldviews, there are only three major families of them. So there's the family that believes in God, and we leave that for the moment. And then there's the, roughly speaking, the atheistic group. There is no God. The universe is just there, and that's it. And then there's the pantheistic group, 
where there is belief in God in some sense, but God and the universe and humanity tend to merge into one that's ultimately impersonal. So roughly speaking, most people, even if they're skeptics, fall into one of those three families. So how how do people in a pantheistic worldview deal with suffering? Well, very often, now this is complex, of course, and I don't want to trivialize worldviews. And secondly, I, I really think people from these worldviews should speak from themselves. But what they've told me is that one of the central ideas is the law of karma, that people who are suffering are suffering because of misbehavior in a past life. And the corollary of that, which I find fearful, to be very open with you, is that if we help those sufferers and alleviate their pain, that will simply mean that in the next life they have to suffer more. So it can lead to a passivity and a lack of even being prepared to help. Now, I'm not accusing all people that fall in the pantheist umbrella of that, but this is one of the major doctrines that is common to some of those religions. And it's a judgmental kind of thing, but it gives no hope except of an everlasting cycle from one life to the next. You also say that some Eastern philosophies see suffering as a kind of illusion. They do indeed, and that the only way to deal with it is to regard it as an illusion. And that doesn't actually provide a lot of help. I don't see that being a great help to people that are going through it, to be quite frank. The other worldview is, of course, atheism. And they just say, and Richard Dawkins is a major spokesman, and he puts it very well. He says, and this is a rough quotation, he says that the universe is just like what we'd expect it to be like. If at its base there's no good, no evil, no justice. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. So here's a deterministic world in which there are no good and no evil. Now, I want to investigate that. Uh, the issue is whether this is true or not. Dawkins says, of course, this is a very grim view, and uh, but it's true, so we just have to accept it and live with it. Well, yes, we do if it's true. But I want to question whether it's true on a whole lot of different levels. And first of all, I don't find it livable because denying morality, there's no good, no evil, means why does one talk about the problem of evil? Because evil doesn't exist. And secondly, we discovered that we're moral beings. Where does morality come from? And here, the great Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, in a famous line in the Brothers Karamazov, if God does not exist, then everything's permissible. And I think that's right. You have no morality in the end, no rational basis for it, if God does not exist. In that sense, we need God in the framework to rationally understand our morality. And finally, although this could lead into a long discussion about science and God, I think atheism is illogical. Because if you take it to its logical conclusion, it undermines the very rationality we need to do science or to conduct any form of argument whatsoever. So I reject it. But on the practical side, I think it's quite important to see this at least, that for my atheist friends, atheism removes an intellectual problem. This is just what the universe is like. 
But I also notice it removes all hope. And because it denies anything after death, anything transcendent, no God, then there is absolutely no hope. It is a hopeless worldview. And of course, if it's true, we've got to accept that. But as I've traced back the legacy that Christianity has given us in this world, hospitals, hospices, and all these kinds of things actually came from the Christian faith originally. Here are people offering hope, bringing hope. Is that all an illusion? No, I don't think so, because I feel then on the positive side, there are major evidences that Christianity is actually true. Yeah, in your book, you respond to Dawkins by saying, if you felt like murdering children for fun, would not that, in this view, simply be dancing to your DNA? And it would be. And that's why even an atheist like J.L. Mackey of Oxford, and he was an atheist, said, if there is any absolute morality, then there's a very simple pathway from that to God. And there is. We all agree that torturing infants is wrong. So there's an absolute And then you also point out that Richard Dawkins himself is not able to live under the implications of his own worldview, since he does describe certain things like 9-11 being evil. Oh, yes, that, that, that is right. It's not a livable philosophy. And it's easy to write this kind of stuff down when you're sitting at a desk, but it isn't livable. And I'm afraid, since it's not only not livable and not credible, I've got to look elsewhere, and I do. Okay, so how is the problem of pain and suffering answered from within a theistic or specifically Christian worldview? Well, that is a huge question that deserves to be teased out. The Bible claims that God doesn't tempt with evil. He's not the author of evil. But in this world, he has created us with the most valuable capacity to love or hate. That means that love is possible, but you can't have love being possible without hate being possible. And many people say to me, couldn't God have created the world without all of this awfulness? And of course he could. He could have made us all automata. But people who say that are wishing themselves out of existence. We have to diagnose or think seriously about what is wrong with the world and it's fractured nature. We've got viruses, we've got earthquakes, tsunamis, and all that kind of thing. And I was forcibly reminded of this when I arrived in New Zealand just after the earthquake, and people wanted to know, why, why is the world like this? Well, I think the Bible talks sense about it, although it probably doesn't give us all the detail we'd like to have. But we've got these two things, the two sources of suffering, moral evil and natural evil. Let's put it that way, because those are the terms people use. And when Jesus came to talk about them, and this is a very interesting thing, he did it almost in the same breath. He was standing on the temple mountain, and some of the crowd told him about a massacre that Pilate had committed in slaughtering a number of people worshiping in Luke 13. And then Jesus turned to them and mentioned not a moral evil, but a natural evil, the falling of a tower of Siloam that fell on 18 people. And he said, do you think these people were worse than anybody else? Expecting the answer, no. Catastrophes like the fall of a tower are not necessarily there 
because a certain group of people have been worse than everybody else. We have Jesus' word for it. And I accept that. He was linking natural evil with moral evil. Now, the Bible does that at its very beginning. It talks about the source of moral evil in a human rebellion against God. But it tells us quite clearly that this had an effect on the physical creation, that it produced not simply good things, but thorns and thistles. We get these rogue things in our creation. And so the biblical story, at least, links them with the entry of sin into the world through human rebellion. So that is the diagnosis that we have to face. Now, whatever spin we put on it, we're faced with a world that is fractured, and we're faced with human beings that are fractured. In my student days, people used to argue about this. Surely a good and all-powerful God would have done this or could have done that. And the fact is, to put it bluntly, all of us confront the same mixed picture. I call it beauty and barbed wire. And we've got to accept that that's the picture. We're not going to solve the philosophical problem. We can think about it, but we haven't solved it. But the wonderful thing is he made provision if things went wrong, which they did. Right. And therefore, I say, can we ask another question that will move us on a bit? Granted that it's like that, and we all have to face it, whether we're atheists, pantheists, or theists. Is there any evidence anywhere that there's a God that we could trust with it? And so at the bigger level, the question is, Christians who believe there is a God, is that God trustworthy? And it's here that Christianity comes to the fore specifically, and not just theism, because the heart of Christianity is God become human. And Jesus claimed to be God incarnate, and he ended on a cross. And if that is God on a cross, I put it very simply, what is that telling us? At the very least, it tells me that he has become part of human suffering and not remained distant from it. Yeah, he not only allows us to suffer, but he also is one who suffers on our behalf. He does indeed, and it's the on our behalf that's so important. You see, if the damage has been caused by the entry of sin into the world, and it happened long before you or I were born, and we can't be expected to put it right. And this is where the deep misconception exists around the world in many countries. They think that Christianity, like all religions, is a matter of self-help, keep the rule book, and God, if you're good enough, will accept you one day. That is not Christianity. That's mere religion. Christianity tells us of a God who came and suffered to take upon himself the guilt and the mess that we've made of our own lives and those of others, and to offer us forgiveness, not in some unspecified future when the judgment decides that we've done enough. None of us can do enough, but tells us this glorious message that has brought peace to millions and forgiveness, that Christ has taken the burden upon himself. So if we are prepared to trust him and lean our weight on him, he will clear us of the debt of guilt right away and give us two things, peace with God and eternal life. So this answers the many questions 
peace for our restlessness, but life to overcome our fear of dying and death, which is very prevalent in the world today. He doesn't guarantee we won't die physically, but he does guarantee we'll never be separated from him, whether we live or we die. And people say, oh, it's only psychological. And I said to them, look, I experienced peace through trusting Christ. That doesn't prove that Christianity is true, but it's what you would expect if it were. Now, you also wrote a book dealing with artificial intelligence, and the title of your book, 2084, is obviously alluding to George Orwell's 1984, which is quite likely the world's most famous dystopian novel. So based on your title alone, it sounds like you might have a few reservations about the future. Oh, certainly I do. But it's not all doom and gloom. I simply wanted to discuss the pros and cons of AI itself, narrow AI, the stuff that actually works at the moment, in order to help people come to a sensible appreciation of it, rather than either being scared to death of it or greeting it with open arms as if there was nothing wrong. Right. You write that as he looks at the potential harm that it can unleash upon the world, even Elon Musk fears that AI is summoning the demon. And you also say that Stephen Hawking expressed his fears about the consequences of creating something that can match or even surpass humans. A super intelligent AI, he noted, will be extremely good at accomplishing its goals. And if those goals aren't aligned with ours, we're in trouble. Yes. And it's interesting to note that this kind of thing is not only being said by sci-fi fiction writers, although it is, of course, and has been the subject of many dystopias and films in the past. Right. It's being said by serious scientists and entrepreneurs. And Stephen Hawking was a very bright person. He, he was concerned with what might happen, as is, incidentally, the present astronomer royal in the United Kingdom, Lord Rees. And similarly, he fears that the future will be very different in terms of what kind of creatures exist. And he realizes that there's a problem. And that problem is an ethical problem. In other words, it boils down to this in terms of present technology. What kind of ethical norms are we building in to the machines that we are designing. Right. And it's unlikely in my view, but suppose a superintelligence is created in some form. No, the ethical problem starts right now because AI that's out there in our culture has got huge issues. You only need to think of artificial intelligence controlled weaponry to start with, or even AI-controlled vehicles. Yeah. How do you program them right. in such a way as to be ethically fair in the difficult choices their sensors may have, whether to hit an old lady crossing the road or a line of children queuing for a bus? And that's not just something that we're waiting to be determined in 2084. That's something that's happening right now. Oh, it is indeed, yes. And I say that as a Christian, I think this is a branch of science that Christians should be involved in. Involved in not only because the science is interesting and exciting to do as a career, but because this very field raises the huge ethical and moral problems, and they're going to increase. Right. And we need people to work in these fields in order to think through the issues and have something to say intelligently and from experience 
to people that are concerned about them. Yeah, especially when it comes to the uh, the ethical dimensions involved in how you program these automatic driving vehicles and what the ethical implications are for how they operate in the real world. That's right. And it's good to see that some people are thinking about it. But the problem always gets back to the what authority, what ethics is going to be built in. And the more sophisticated mm-hmm. things get, think of autonomous weapons, which can kill a target without you even lifting a finger, so to speak. Right. That has fearsome implications if such a system gets into the hands of a tyrannical dictator in a totalitarian regime. Or even a country like ours, the more you cede power to this automation, the question then becomes who automated it. So you are relinquishing your freedom to the select individuals who programmed how it should operate. That's right. And that's the tension that many people are already facing in our in our world. How much freedom are you prepared to give up to have security? Are you prepared to have CCTV televisions in every street in order to be safe from criminal activity? And there's a fine balance between well-motivated surveillance techniques and control. Not to say anything about the problem that these recognition techniques at the moment make mistakes or the AI systems have built in bias. And that, of course, is a very serious situation indeed. Mm -hmm. So again, there's a lack of proper integration of an agreed moral code into these systems that doesn't lead to the anomalies. You talk in your book about narrow artificial intelligence and how that's quite a bit different from what we know as general human intelligence. Can you go into that? Yes. Well, narrow AI is the AI that already works. And if we've got a smartphone, which many of us have, we are involved with it virtually every day. Simple example, I buy a book on Amazon a few days later, a little pop-up will say people that bought that book usually are interested in buying this book. And that results from the fact that it's harvesting information about me and putting it into a major database. And the AI system that actually sifts through that database and predicts what book I should buy next out of the millions of books available It is a narrow AI system. Now, what is that? It is a computer-based system, a computer working on a large database. That is the information they've got about me and about all the available books. And the system performs one task very rapidly and efficiently that would normally require a human intelligence to do. And that is really a descriptor of most, if not all, of the AI systems that already are working around the world. And some of it is very beneficial. The example of the beneficial side, many of them are in medicine, and almost every day you read of a new AI system. A simple example is in x-rays, radiology. They take a million x-rays, that's the database, but you have to inform the database. So those x-rays are all labeled with the diseases that they represent. 
they're put in the database, and then I have difficulty breathing, and I have an X-ray. It's put into the system, and the computer rapidly compares it with those million, and out it comes with a diagnosis. And very often, that diagnosis will be better, significantly better, than what I would have got from my local doctor. And this is obviously going to enhance medical diagnosis and subsequent treatment. So that's a very positive thing. But go back to my example of the book and what is happening commercially. The data that is being harvested is the word they use now about me. It doesn't only include the books I buy, it includes the GPS positioning of my smartphone, and it may even include eavesdropping on conversations, marking where I've been, and all those kind of things. But what many people don't realize is that information that's harvested is being sold on to third parties without our permission. Right. And that's an intrusion on privacy, and it's very concerning. And Susanna Zuboff of MIT has written a book called uh, Surveillance Capitalism, which is grabbing attention at the highest economic levels in our world because she's warning that this is a very serious problem. And surveillance in general, not only surveillance capitalism, but facial recognition in AI can catch criminals, but can also be used to control a population or a subpopulation. And that raises all kinds of ethical questions and intrusions of privacy. How is that different from what you describe as artificial general intelligence? Well, the difference is that the narrow AI only does one thing. It's predicting what book you will read. It's accessing an x-ray library, one thing, and doing it well. The idea of AGI is to develop a machine that will surpass human beings in all areas simultaneously. In other words, you produce a superintelligence. And there are really two avenues of thought on that. First of all, we start with human intelligence and we enhance it by implanting chips, by adding machinery so that humans virtually become cyborgs. Is this the transhumanism movement? Well, the transhumanist movement has a simple idea of going beyond human. Right. We are at the stage now in terms of science, particularly genetics, where we can begin to envisage a serious modification of the nature of human beings themselves. For instance, by modifying the genome in some way and therefore transmitting something that we have added or subtracted or modified to all future generations. In other words, we become human conditioners. And C.S. Lewis pointed out in the 1940s that what we would be producing is not humans, but artifacts, mm -hmm. so that the final triumph of humanity would be the abolition of man. And that's why I regard it as very serious. We've never been in a position before to muck about with human nature. And if you come from a strongly materialistic, atheistic viewpoint, you will tend to say, well, what are human beings? They're simply advanced animals. 
and they've come to be by a natural, unguided process that has brought us so far. But it has brought us to the stage where we are now intelligent enough to take that process into our own hands. And why shouldn't we? If it can be done, it should be done. There are no theological or even moral principles that necessarily will hold anybody back from doing that. And that's where the problem arises and where I say in my book very clearly, we need to get back to the question of human beings 1.0 and what they actually are, because it makes a huge difference Right. if you believe they're just a random product of a mindless process, or you believe that they were created in the image of an intelligent, personal God. That makes a huge difference. And it also makes a difference to the reticence you should show about modifying them. And I think since everybody is interested in human identity, then we need to say something about this because the rate at which it's going is scaring even some of the leaders in the scientific field who have no faith in God whatsoever. Yeah. And so that could either occur by enhancing a human that you start with, or it could be, and here's where the sci-fi increases, it could be finding a way to make existence, mental existence, and all our experiences uploadable onto a silicon base so that we no longer be dependent on a carbon-based system and therefore be more endurable. And you probably know there are people who have died that are frozen in the hope that one day they'll be thawed out when we find a way to upload their contents of their brains onto silicon. So those two things, that's the transhumanist dream, is using these technologies to move beyond the human to a super intelligence. After reading your book, I, I kind of sense that you're skeptical about those possibilities. <laughs> I'm very skeptical about the possibilities, but I'm not the only one who's skeptical. And a great deal of my skepticism has to do with the fact that the greatest barrier in the face of all of this is the word artificial in artificial intelligence. And as an elderly now, pioneer in this field called Dr. Joseph Melichamp, who happens to be a Christian believer. He wrote a paper a long time ago in computing terms, 1985, I think it was. And its title is beautiful. The artificial in artificial intelligence is real. In other words, what we're doing in these systems is we're disconnecting intelligence in the sense that the machines are doing something that normally needs human intelligence to do. We're disconnecting that capacity from consciousness. Humans are conscious beings. And if you're going to create a super intelligent being that can do anything humans can do in all areas, then you have to discover a way of making a conscious being. And that's the barrier for the very simple reason that no one has the faintest idea of what consciousness is right. alone being able to construct it. So it seems to me that the hype begins precisely where folks think that they're going to make a thinking machine. 
An artificial intelligence system of the type we've already developed doesn't think. The intelligence, and this is the trouble, we use anthropomorphisms to describe these machines. Right. Artificial intelligence is almost an oxymoron because the artificial gives the game away. It is not conscious, but it's doing something that normally requires intelligence. And it takes a bit of time before people get their minds around that. Because once people use the terminology, oh, we've got an artificial intelligence that does this, they immediately think it's but a short step before it'll do everything else, not right. realizing the barrier of consciousness between. You interact quite a bit throughout your book with the writings of an Israeli author by the name of Yuval Harari. Tell us a little bit about him and his book, Homo Deus. Well, Harari is a historian, actually. He's written two books, Sapiens, on the origin of human beings, and then Homo Deus, about the future of human beings. And the title of Homo Deus is indicative of something that goes back to the dawn of history, to the temptation in Genesis 3, and the proposal that was put by God's enemy to the first humans eat that forbidden fruit and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So God was misrepresented to them through a half-truth by telling them that God wanted to suppress them and keep them down, didn't want them to rise to his level and become as gods. But as with many people today, they don't see that the text is referring not to a tree of knowledge, but to a tree of knowledge and good and evil, which is very different. God wasn't against them getting knowledge. It was the knowledge that they didn't want to have that they gained. Right. But that has led right through history to the search for some kind of elixir of life, it's called, that will enhance humanity and cause us to rise. And therefore, Harari is building on this kind of thing, but building on it in connection with the developments in artificial intelligence. And he has got two principal agenda items for the 21st century. One, he regards death as a purely physical problem that will be solved by technical means, so that although human beings can die, they won't have to die. That's number one. Number two is then the accentuation and increase in human experience of flourishing and happiness. And that will be brought about by genetic engineering, by drugs, by artificial intelligence, and all this kind of thing. Harari is a strong atheist and therefore has no God dimension in order to reflect on this. And I include him in the book for a very simple reason. Someone needs to say something from a perspective that actually has got a great deal more to offer than Harari has. And that's where my book moves towards its end, because he says we're going to solve death as a technical problem, physical death that is, and we're going to become superhuman, we're going to become gods. And my reaction to that is it's ironic, but you're too late. The problem of physical death was solved long ago when God raised Jesus from the dead. And anybody who trusts him can receive eternal life. And 
therefore is guaranteed resurrection from the dead. That is an uploading, so to speak, if I might use that terminology, that has got real credibility because the evidence for the resurrection of Christ is very strong. So the supreme irony of the whole thing, when I look at it, is this. The quest for superintelligence, the quest to be homo deus, is humans striving to make gods of themselves, humans Mm. reaching upwards towards God. The central theme of Christianity is the exact opposite of that. It's God reaching down to human beings. Indeed, it's God becoming a human. And that, for me, is immensely important. And what I wish to do with the book, 2084, is to show that the Christian scenario has got the deep answers to the longings that are determining these other superintelligence transhumanistic scenarios. You write at one point in your later chapters that post-human scenarios tend to be utopian almost by definition. And as we know, utopian thinking has usually led in the past not to a promised paradise on earth, but to indescribable violence, war, and the deaths of millions. I'm wondering, um, you know, you've mentioned the relevance of the book of Genesis. Do you think that the quest for things like uploading consciousness to some kind of silicone-based system so that we're no longer constrained to the limitations of the body, at its root, is an attempt to eat from the tree of life in a way that hasn't been authorized? Well, I I think so. And it's very interesting. If you watch Jordan Peterson's talks on Genesis, he sees the importance of these things, even though he's coming at it from a very different perspective in terms of understanding how life came about through natural process and evolution and so on. But he sees the big idea, the, the notion of the danger of reaching up to God And he talks about the central statement of Genesis 1, human beings made in the image of God. And he almost breaks off at his lecture and says, man, you neglect that at your peril. That that's one of the central things. And the interesting thing is, you see, that the tree that they ate off, according to Genesis, was not the tree of life. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. And then God stopped them getting to the tree of life. Right. And the very fact that they were forbidden to go there, I think, is the driver behind all this search to find, as I put it earlier, an elixir of life, some solution to the problem of physical death. But it won't be solved technologically. Why? Because, as Genesis tells us, it's a moral and spiritual rebellion against God that caused it. That fall, so to speak, into sin, rebelling against the word of God, had physical consequences. But they're not going to be solved by advances in medicine because of their very nature. So Genesis can help us analyze what's going on in the thinking of many people on this topic at the moment. One last question. Since you have written a book addressing a lot of the themes we find in the book of Genesis, what do you make of the contrast between the Tower of Babel, which men attempt to build in Genesis 11, and the latter which God himself reveals to Jacob in Genesis 28, and which, of course, Jesus alludes to in John chapter 1? The almost amusing thing about the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is they were using human technology and ability 
mm-hmm. and they wanted to build a tower that reached to heaven, as they put it. But it didn't quite reach because the text puts it rather beautifully and says God came down to look at it, so it hadn't got that far. Yeah. And someone once wrote that skyscrapers, and you probably noticed that every country in the world vies to have the tallest building. Yep. And someone once wrote, perhaps cynically, that behind every skyscraper, there is an even bigger ego. <laughs> they are symbols of humans reaching for God-like characteristics. And Jacob, you see, later on you're mentioning in Genesis, the idea that there's an access, that there is a ladder. And the very interesting thing is that, as I understand the text, God is at the bottom of the ladder. He's at the bottom. He's come down to be with Jacob. And Jacob's reaction shows that. Surely God is in this place. Yeah. That was the new thing about it. It wasn't surely God is in heaven. He knew that. It was God actually coming down. He came down to be with Jacob. So he came a lot further down, so to speak, than he had at the Tower of Babel. And Jacob wasn't even looking for him. He wasn't building anything. He was, in fact, leaving the promised land because his brother wanted to kill him. (laughs) He was running away. Yes, that's exactly right. And then in John chapter 1, as you say, Jesus pointed out that one day Jacob's vision was going to be fulfilled in a big way where Jesus himself would be revealed as the one who is at the center of the government of the universe. He is then the true homo deus. And John's gospel particularly is full of that claim that he is the son of God. Right. And that's where Christianity centers on. So all of this hype about humans becoming gods through artificial intelligence is utterly beside the point. It's not real, but what Christ promises is real. It isn't artificial. Well, folks, you've been hearing from Oxford mathematician John Lennox, author of 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity, as well as numerous other books that we'll link to in the show notes. If you'd like to consider attending one of our upcoming conferences, we've got information about this in the show notes as well. I'll be speaking at the Cross and Resurrection Conference this coming March in Memphis, Tennessee, and Greg Hochul will be joining us here in the St. Louis area in April for an apologetics conference titled Conversations That Matter. Our web address is humbleskeptic.com. That's humbleskeptic.com. And we look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. We'll be right back.